place where you're just grasping for hope. Or maybe you're in a place like that today in your life, and I'm just grasping for hope. I don't know where to turn. So I've entitled this series that we'll walk through over the next, you know, potentially year or so, um, whenever I'm up here with a, the blessing to preach, hope in Christ. So, so Peter is writing to those who are followers of Jesus, who are separated, who are separated from the main church. And also these are people who are living in such a way that is completely different than the world around them to people he considers or calls to be exiles. We can have hope in Christ because we have a hope in a future joy, right? We know that even in the midst of our circumstances as Christ walks with us and holds us securely in the midst of difficulties, we know that we're coming to a day where it's all over, where there's nothing but joy in the perfect presence of Jesus Christ. We also hope uh, uh, in the biggest way in the return of Jesus Christ, that our Savior is coming back, right? So Peter is trying to give hope. This is not a letter that really teaches a whole lot of theology. What it does it reminds you of truth in the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to undergird the suffering believer with hope. So I want you to turn this morning to 1 Peter. We're going to be in the first two verses. And while you're turning there, I want to ask, have you ever found yourself to be an outsider? And just think about that. And it could be on a small level. It could be in a level where you're like, oh, I'm in trouble or something in between. Have you ever found yourself to be an outsider? So I grew up as what they call an Air Force brat, right? Or Air Force kid. My dad was in the Air Force most of my childhood. Um, and I know, Nathan Palmer, you're going to know where I'm coming from with this and your family as well, that... I, so I was kind of even anomaly within military families. I went to at least I was counting during, during equipping hour today in my head, at least 10 schools before college I went to. So I was a new kid a lot. And I've lived in over 30 houses. That's just weird. And so, but I've been the new guy in the school, in the neighborhood, and know what it feels like to not know the way things are done here. I was just remembering my first day of maybe third or fourth grade, I switched in the middle of the year, and my mom from India, she would reuse every container to store things in, right? So we had this little cookie container that my crayons were in, and at nine in the morning, we were moving from one place to the other, and I grabbed my little container, and the teacher said, no, 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 David, it's not lunchtime yet. I'm like, oh, no, no, my crayons are in here, right? No, 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 my lunches are in here. I didn't know the way things were being done at this school. You know what it's like to be an outsider. And so Peter is writing to ones who have turned away from the wisdom of the world, ones who have rejected the values of society in order to pursue a greater kingdom, in order to pursue being a follower of Jesus Christ. And so we have done so today. Those of us here who are followers of Jesus Christ, we can find ourselves as outsiders, even in the midst of places that we should be quite familiar, in a home when we visit with family, in the workplace, in our schools, places where we have a lot in common with the other people, but there is something that sets us apart and makes us an outsider. The fact that we don't desire the same things that the world around us in general desires, right? We don't live for the same things. We have different priorities. But you know what hit me as I was writing this introduction and thinking about it? Isn't it true to say that even as exiles, even as outsiders, 
we can tend to long for the way of life that is being exalted around us, right? Isn't that the pull? Isn't that the tension? So we are followers of Jesus Christ. We desire to live for a kingdom that is to come, right? To carry the love of Christ everywhere we go and to stay away from the things that are mar our conscience and keep us far from the Lord. But there's something in us that pulls towards it, isn't there? Isn't that the difficulty? We're in such a strange spot We're forgiven, and we know it, but we struggle with guilt. We have ultimate hope in Christ, ultimate hope for our eternity, but the smallest difficulty in our day can crush us, right? Can just send us in a whole different direction. We're citizens of a heavenly kingdom, and get this one, but we can get pretty obsessed with the ins and outs of the earthly kingdom we were placed within to serve. So a couple of things to, to, to just consider about 1 Peter. It's most likely written between AD 58 and 63. Most people place it in those later years, 61, 62, 63. We believe that Paul and Peter were martyred around 64, 65. And so this is near the end of his ministry, the end of his life. Uh, it's believed to have been written in Rome. But he refers to it as Babylon, okay? So he's referring to it as Babylon, but most people believe that it was written in Rome, and it's being addressed to believers. Now, it's not just being addressed to Jewish believers, even though we know Peter to be the apostle to the circumcision, right? The apostle to the Jews. He is writing to, and we'll get to this a little later as we jump into the text, he's writing to believers that are Jews and who are Gentiles as well. In Asia Minor which is mostly modern Turkey. And again, we'll kind of break this down a little bit more, and we'll see this map again down the road. You'll recognize it, right? So let's read our text together, and then we're going to jump right in. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And so we have four, not really points today, but kind of sections, right? So we're just going through the introduction to the letter today, and the sections are these. That Peter, you mean, oh, you mean that Peter? Yes. Elect exiles, God in three persons, and grace and peace. There are some things I want you to know about Peter, like the guy who wrote this before we really, really jump in. So Peter, it's very interesting to me, he is mentioned more in the Gospels than any other disciple. And I want you to kind of, you're going to start like the weight of who's doing the talking here is going to grow in your mind. We kind of sleep on Peter. We know who he is. We know he's very involved, but sometimes we think of him as the foot and mouth guy. We think of the guy who talks too much, the guy who overreacts. And a lot of people, when you ask, who do you kind of resonate with, right? In the Gospels, man, I'm just like Peter, right? I'm one of those guys. Talk too much, right? Kind of jump ahead without thinking. There's so much more to this man in the way that the Lord has grew him. And we got to watch him grow up, so to speak, from the day he was called until, until we see him in Acts, just serving the Lord with boldness and confidence. Um, he also speaks more in the Gospels than any other disciple. Is there a typo up there? Mm. 
Oops. And Jesus speaks more to him than to any other disciple. So Jesus speaks more to Peter than to anyone else in the conversations that we see Jesus having in, in, in the uh, Gospels. And so our four points, the first one is going to be this, that Peter. So look here in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So actually we're going to back up and just stop here. Peter. When you think of Peter... I want you to think, what is the passage that you think of, right? Don't raise your hand and tell me. But I'm sure there's something where you think of sometimes, something kind of big happens in, in the Gospels. You're like, man, that's the one I think about. Either it's a funny situation or maybe it's something pretty serious. Maybe it's as the one who denied Christ. Maybe it's the one who was restored by Christ on the beach that day. But so I want to take you through kind of just a, just a, a memoir, if you will. We're going to go through Scripture and just I want to just remind you just how far Jesus brought Peter from the day that he met him. And so we're going to start here with a short biography. So first, in Luke 5, 8, he is the one who recognizes the holiness of Jesus Christ and his own sinfulness. We see a foreshadowing of the gospel in the first kind of words that he says to Jesus. So in Luke 5, 8, Jesus sees that they've been fishing all night. They haven't caught anything. They're coming back in. The nets are already rolled up. He says, no, 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 go back out. Cast her down on the other side of the boat, Right? They do it, they catch so many fish, they can't even handle them, and the words out of Peter's mouth is this, but when Peter, Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. There's already something there, the first words we hear this man say, there's something there, an understanding in the presence of perfection and holiness, I don't belong here, I'm an exile, I'm an outsider. I need something that you have, right? I, I don't belong in your presence. He's also the one in Matthew 16 who confesses that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. I'll just pick up Matthew 16. You have to turn there, 13 through 18. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But in the next big moment that I see in Matthew 16, I mean, this is not the same breath, but moments later in Matthew 16, he's the one who corrects Jesus, tries to rebuke Jesus. So it says here in Matthew 16, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. A little while later, we see in the upper room, the night before Jesus is crucified, he didn't want Jesus to wash his feet, but in true Peter-level overcorrection, he completely overcorrects, right? So he comes to, Jesus, uh, to Peter, he's washing the disciples' feet. Jesus says, he comes to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do not wash my feet. 
Jesus answered him, what am I doing, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, wash not my feet only, but also my hands and my head, right? Don't wash my feet. Okay, wash everything. Jesus goes on to say, that's not necessary. I'm going to wash your feet, Peter. But you see, we're building the story of who he is. Jesus foretells Peter's denial. He is the one who says, I will not deny you, Jesus. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. He goes on, he, he cuts off the, the, high priest, the uh, high priest servant's ear, Malchus, right? Then he does deny Jesus. It says that Jesus is taken in for trial and he's outside. John gets to go in, Peter's outside. He warms himself around a fire and a servant girl says, you know, aren't you that guy? You were with Jesus. No, 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 no. Just moments later, almost in the same breath of saying, I'll never deny you. There he is, denying him in the face of a little girl, so to speak. We also know that Peter was not the fastest disciple, <laughs> right? So in John 20, 3 and 4, Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. We had fun with that one as we walked through John with the youth. I just think it's hilarious because John goes on further a couple sentences later to say, and then the other disciple, the one who reached the tomb first, <laughs> stooped to go inside. But... Emma, thank you for the meme. We keep on going. So that Peter, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Then in John 21, he is restored by Jesus and given some difficult news. Do you love me, he has asked three times? Yes, he says, right? Because he denied him three times. And he goes on to tell him, Peter, you're gonna die for me, right? All this time, you've gone where you wanna go, worn what you wanna wear, but there's a day coming. You're gonna be walked away. You're gonna be led in a direction you don't wanna go. You're gonna be stripped and you're gonna die for me. He knows this. This is something that's gonna be over Peter's ministry from that day on. So in light of what we're about to read uh, over the course of First and Second Peter, over the course of these books, you have to remember that this is something he knows is coming. And even as you read in Acts and the bold way with the courage in which he, he shares the difference that we see is striking. It's amazing. In Acts chapter 2, he proclaims one of the most powerful sermons that you're ever going to read. And here's just a snippet in Acts chapter 2, 36. It says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. How do you go from being scared of the opinion of a little girl and the fact she might call you out to standing in front of the people who could do the same thing to you and put you on a cross if they want right now say you crucified Jesus Christ I think it's amazing right you think of the day that he met Jesus there he is just on the dock you know saying I don't even belong in your presence and I just think it's kind of cool because there's the same guy like stoic and awesome what makes somebody different I'm going to put it back up you're just starting to get it so everyone just laughs so I feel better ready go all right Whew. all right did not fail okay so 
That Peter, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is one who is sent, one who is hand-selected by Jesus to go and to share the good news. And what makes him from a guy who is terrified to a guy who is bold? He witnessed and he met and he was sent and empowered by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the obedience to Christ, and the sprinkling of his blood, as we'll read about in just a moment as we move on in our text. So that's kind of our first section. The next one, he goes on to say, so Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Again, Peter is writing to follower of Jesus Christ in Asia Minor. Okay, I'll just put this up here. And this is mostly modern-day Turkey. And the way he describes these Christ followers is important. Elect exiles. Remember, the foundation of this book is encouragement, hope in suffering to keep your eyes on Christ. So he tells them, he addresses them in such a way that will even bolster their strength. He is encouraging them from the very beginning. The reminder is that the hearer of this letter, both in the first century and today, is chosen by God himself to be a citizen of a kingdom not made by hands. We read in Hebrews. The theme of this letter is hope and suffering. So even addressing the recipients as exiles, stranger in a foreign land, he reminds them and us that we're outsiders, outsiders and exiles at the pleasure of the king. So to call you elect exiles, you're not here by mistake. You didn't just wander into some position to where now you are an exile, where you don't fit in with the people around you. You are elect. You have been chosen by God the Father before the foundation of the world, foreordained, right? Foreknown by the Lord that you would be in this position. So have hope. Everything I'm about to tell you comes from the fact that you belong here. And all of the time in your life you feel like, I don't belong here, That's the position you've been called to because you can depend on the strength and the encouragement and the love of Jesus Christ himself. Now, when he says elect exiles, at first glance, we may want to equate this treating with James's greeting. Remember, we just finished James and James is talking to, to exiles, those who have been dispersed. And you have to remember, well, let's look here at James 1. And James begins his sermon, James 1, the first verse, his, his, his letter, um, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in dispersion. So you think, okay, these are scattered believers, these are scattered believers, same kind of audience, but you have to remember. So James was the pastor, he was the head of the church at Jerusalem, okay? Central place of Jewish believers. And he says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, he's talking to Jewish people there, and these are the readers of his letter. At the same time, Peter is talking to areas where there may not have ever really been Jews. And later in a, in a, in a later down the road sermon, we'll see that he refers to the readers of this letter as people who, had, who were not part of a group. You did not have a, a people, but now you are part of a people. That means he's talking to Gentiles because Jews were a part of a people, right? Get that? So remember that James is the pastor of this church. Um, are there many displaced Jews among the church in Asia Minor? Of course. But Peter's audience is a mix of both Jews and Gentiles. So his use of the word exile is more spiritual in nature. These are people from diverse backgrounds. Many are living among their own people, but now they have a new citizenship. 
Peter's writing to people who are experiencing persecution and being singled out for their faith in Jesus. And again, did you realize that you can be in exile in a familiar place, at your job, at your school, on a team, at work? Followers of Jesus are different. We're supposed to be different. Not different for different sake. Not just to be weird and just to stand out, just so we have another way to identify ourselves, right? Everyone's looking for that, for that identity that will set themselves apart. Not for that reason, but because we love Jesus. Because we want to worship the Lord with our lives. We are called to be different. Jesus tells us to be salt and light. Those are two things that when they enter into their given situations, they do not leave it the same. They make it better. When a room is dark and you turn on the light, it's not simply hanging out as another one of the things in the room. It is now touching everything. You can now see the room for what it is. You can do what needs to be done. You no longer have to be afraid of what might be in there. That's what the light does. The salt adds flavor and preserves, right? So those of us, so so as we go into our daily lives, as we are at our schools and at our jobs and just living, even just going shopping and among shoulder to shoulder with people made in God's image, we remember we're salt and light. We may be exiles, we may be different, but we are there with a purpose, to honor Jesus Christ. And in all of it, we have joy and peace in the immediate presence of Jesus Christ to look forward to for all of eternity. So let this be fuel for each of us as we seek to be faithful in our daily circumstances. When Christ returns, we will be home. But right now, we're exiles, So it goes on to say, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And we don't know how many churches are represented in that area. But just to give you an idea, think about that. Just one of these areas that he is discussing, Asia, a little while, 30 years later, John writes in a letter uh, in Revelation, he writes to at least seven, I mean, we know there's at least seven churches there in Asia, right? Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Cyrus, Philadelphia, Laodicea. So just think about that. If that's just one of these areas that Peter is writing to, there's a ton of churches involved, right? There is a lot of believers who are going to get this information. There's a lot of people who are on Peter's heart that need to be encouraged in their suffering. So let's continue. The third section is this, God in three persons. Goes on to say, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. There's a Trinitarian discussion going on here. There's a, there's a reminder of the Trinity. And just as we are going to end our service, Pastor Allen will come up here after the final song and lead us in our benediction. And at the end of 2 Corinthians 13, we'll say the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Right? We'll say this, we'll say this Trinitarian blessing. He's opening his letter with a, a Trinitarian reminder and blessing, so to speak. And this is a Trinitarian breakdown of our salvation. And just as a reminder, okay, a lot of, we, we try to wrap our mind around the Trinity. I just want to put this in here before we jump into this next section. You know, some people will say the Trinity, it's like, you know, water as liquid, steam, and ice. That's modalism, Patrick, right? Um, 
You could say it's like an apple. You have the skin, the flesh, and the core. Or it's like an egg. You have None of those are true. If you were nodding your head for any of those, you're a heretic. Don't, don't believe that, okay? Just know that. So the simplest way to understand, the simplest way to understand that I found um, are these affirmations that come from Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. And if you can rem- remember these, these are very helpful to us. It gives us something that we cannot reconcile in our heads, but you know what? God's bigger than us. He knows more than we know, and this is what he wants us to know about him. God exists in three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. Say those with me. The first one, say this with me. God exists in three persons. Each person is fully God. Last one, there is one God. We need to remember these things. These things are all true. They do not contradict one another because his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He is high above us as the heavens are above the earth. We don't get it. Say, I don't get it. You don't get it. You're not going to get it, okay? Because he's God and we're not. Amen? All right, so, so it's a Trinitarian breakdown of our salvation. Twice in two verses, Peter encourages believers that they are indeed chosen by God. He says, elect exiles, and then he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You know, Charles Spurgeon said, the sovereignty of God is the softest pillow on which we can lay our heads. Just knowing that whatever you are going through in your life is ordained and established by the Lord that is given to us for our good and for his glory, it gives you an opportunity to rest in Christ. To say again, just like he says exiles, right, by the, by, by the sending of the Lord, uh, by the by the choosing of the Lord, we also say here in every situation in our lives, we are in it because God wants us there. And he's going to walk with us through it. He's going to walk with us in it. He's going to strengthen us and make us more like Jesus Christ. His election and foreknowledge, his control and sovereignty serve to give us peace. And just as Peter addresses the first century believers who are undergoing persecution, his letter serves to encourage us as well. We are followers of Christ and citizens of God's kingdom because that's the way God wants it. He ordains the events of our lives for our good and for his glory. You must remember that with whatever it is you're going through in life, for our good and for his glory. This is sanctification, right? Michelangelo, when he made the statue of David, which is just completely beautiful, right? And someone asked him, you know, how do you make this kind of statue? He said, well, I just, I take the marble, I chip away everything that's not David, right? Think about that. That's what the Lord is doing with our heart in sanctification. With everything that comes into our lives for our good and for his glory, he is chipping away everything that's not like Jesus Christ. He's making us more like his savior, right? It's like taking sandpaper to the rough edges, putting us in situations that will make us grow, make us go past what we can handle, repent, come back to him, change next time by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're growing in sanctification. And so in this, in, in this verse, we have according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit lives in us and seals us now and for all of eternity. Just consider that he lives inside of us. He is the very same power that rose Jesus from the dead, and he is with us. He is that living water that Jesus promised to us, everyone who believes, that will pour from our hearts beyond measure. He leads us, he guides us, and he points us to Jesus Christ in every area of our lives. 
helps us to understand his word, brings his word to our remembrance. And this is how he is sanctifying us. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in all of these places, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, that we would grow and become more like Jesus. But why? Why are we being sanctified? That we might obey Jesus Christ. And it all begins because of the sprinkling of his blood. That's the end of verse 2. So finally, the true centerpiece in this Trinitarian reminder of the Father and the Holy Spirit is what Christ has done. This is the jewel of our salvation, the finished work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Believers are set apart in sanctification for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. This terminology is hearkening back to Exodus 24. Moses reads, he has read the book of the covenant to the people, and this is the response in Exodus 24, that he took the book of the covenant and read it to the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do obedience, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, the sprinkling of his blood, and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Faith that's accompanied by obedience. The sprinkling of his blood referenced here is the application of what Jesus' death on the cross is being applied to us, right? And God in his foreknowledge, he allows us to be part of the family. The blood of Jesus Christ is applied to us. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us that we can walk in obedience. It's all right there. And this is what he's reminding these elect exiles. You are suffering. You are going to endure persecution. You have been enduring persecution. But you know what? This is God's story. Look at all that took place within the Trinity in order for you to be here, to be part of this. Have one more faithful day. Do not give up. Serve the Lord with gladness. Do not become weary in well-doing. So finally, he just pronounces this blessing. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter ends his greetings with a phrase that I think that sometimes we could take for granted, grace and peace. It's a very Christian-sounding phrase, isn't it, right? I end all my emails with in Christ. I remember just sharing with some people before, you know, it's, it's not an automatic thing that I, I always type it in because it makes me look back over the email, say, can I say this without being a hypocrite? In Christ, right? So Pastor Allen, you may have gotten an email from him this week. He always signs his emails with grace and peace and peace. But we don't want to just look at those words and take them for granted and say, yeah, that's what the pastor says. That's a churchy thing to say. That's a bible thing. That's a, a pastory thing to say. Do you understand what is involved in saying grace and peace be multiplied to you? Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's by grace we're given and made righteous, we're forgiven and made righteous before a holy God. It's by grace we're even able to endure temptation of the world around us and we want to follow Jesus and he gives us the strength by giving us grace. Grace is getting what we do not deserve, purchased on the cross and by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and this is the only through true cho- this is the only source of true peace in the world by having grace this is how we get peace so grace and peace be multiplied to you well if you have the grace the peace is available to you but how much of us walk around with our heads held low and our shoulders down without considering any of these things so peter says yeah you're suffering and i'm about to encourage you But I want you to remember the grace and peace that you have. May it be multiplied to you. 
They go hand in hand. And these are, wouldn't you say that these are probably some of the most sought after experiences in the human condition? Grace and peace. Isn't everyone looking for some way to be absolved of that past of theirs or what they know is wrong with their hearts? It's grace. And isn't everyone, everyone looking for that thing that's going to give them peace? That's a whole other sermon for another day. But grace and peace be multiplied to you. And there's a reason, so there's a reason we find this greeting throughout the epistles. So for the exiles, the ones who have traded the pursuit of the world for the sake of following Jesus, grace and peace are everything. They're fuel. They're sustenance for that next day to follow Jesus. And we have access to these in abundance today and forever because we are in Christ and that's not changing. And regardless of your circumstances, you can enjoy these things if you just stop preferring and chasing after the empty trinkets of the world. You can have all the grace and peace in Christ you desire if you'd stop dividing your affections. And for the one here who does not know Jesus Christ, grace and peace are simply like a dream. They're a concept to you. I'd love to have that, but I've tried so many things. It's available to you because even though we were born with a sinful nature, enemies of God, fully deserving of punishment, separated from God in a very real place called hell one day, Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life that you and I could never live. He died a death on the cross that you and I justly deserve to die. And he rose again three days later, conquering sin and death and the grave. And he says, come and follow me. Repent of your sin. Turn from your sin. Follow me. I'll give you a new heart. Make that heart of stone into a heart of flesh. We'll change you now. And you'll be with me for all of eternity. That's the call. If you want to follow Jesus, talk to us after the service. Pray. Repent of your sin. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. We thank you for grace and peace available because of the finished, accomplished work of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you and you alone will be glorified through what was taught today. Let anything that missed the mark fall by the wayside, Lord. Lord, allow the the beauty of your scripture to just stay in the hearts of these folks um, as we go about our week, that we would dwell uh, with understanding of the grace and peace that you've given us in Christ. Lord, as we sing now, let it be for joy and let it be as a response to the truth that you are good, you are unchanging, you are great, you are holy, um, and you are close to us because of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.